Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. He was highly respected by his troops. Uh, in fact, if you look at the diaries of a lot of his men, um, his lieutenants primarily, they point out his courageousness and his bravery in battle. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor James Deitch discussing the tactical negligence of Johann Rall at Trenton, and he's our guest today. It's our 200th episode. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today is our 200th episode Four years of dispatches. Hard to believe. And our guest today is James Deitch. He'll be discussing the military failures of Johann Rall at the Battle of Trenton. This is a, a fascinating topic for me. Uh, I did write a book on the Hessians in 2017, maybe 16. The years go by. Uh, but it's one of the really sort of understudied periods and aspects of the revolution. And we here at the Journal of the American Revolution are really lucky to have a historian like James Deitch to give us some important insight on this material. We're going to talk today about the difference between tactical negligence and personal negligence. And this is often done after the fact, uh, after a battle goes a certain way. One thing you'll learn about a lot of these Hessian officers as you study them is that they are very competent, brutally serious people. Uh, much more so, I think, than many of the American opponents they faced at the time. Maybe not later in the war, but certainly in the beginning. And you're going to see that in victory and defeat, they often dissect every troop movement and every aspect of the battle. Not only to see where it went wrong, but to see how they can improve on it. They're really fascinating people, and I encourage you to work, uh, to research the Hessians whenever you can. James Deitch will take a lot of that legwork out of it for you. He'll bring it directly into your fingertips. So, uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with James Deitch. James Deitch, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you this morning, Brady. Tell us about your background. Sure. Uh, well, I was born in Philadelphia. I grew up in Bucks County, uh, about an hour north of Philadelphia. I went to high school in Finland, and I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school. Uh, I served in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Norway, throughout the continental United States, and aboard the U.S. Uh, Saratoga aircraft carrier. I was a logistics and motor transport operations chief for most of my military career. I hold a uh, bachelor's and master's in business, but I'm, I'm most proud of my master's in military history from Norwich University, and I'm currently working on my PhD in history at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, most of my focus is on early American history with a focus on ethnic Germans 
in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and our founding fathers and the impact of uh, early American Christianity. James, we're recording this on the morning of Super Bowl Sunday. By the end of this day, I'll put you on the spot. Will the Philadelphia Eagles have a Super Bowl ring? Yes, they will. I, I forecast that we will win the Super Bowl today. Okay. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, yeah, so I, I was born in Philadelphia. I grew up in Bucks County. Uh, I went to school in Buckingham, which is right up the river from McConkie's Ferry, more commonly known as Washington's Crossing. Um, I live very close uh, proximity to the battlefields and you know, my early understanding of the battles and the, and the lore and the myth of the battles um, was uh, pretty strong. I mean, it was part of our culture in, in that part of Pennsylvania. I've walked the grounds uh, since I was a boy, and, and I continue to do so as an adult. Um, I still have family in the area, and one of my nieces lives very close to the battlefield. My brother lives right up the river. Um I'm drawn to the river. I visit it often, reflecting on what happened there and the importance of those events uh, to the history of the United States, the founding of our country. Um, there's a lot of significant events, it, 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 and if you put a dozen historians in a room, they'll argue which is the most important, but I would contend that the period of 14 December 1776 to 5 January 1777 or not only the most interest to me, but I feel they're the most important to the war for much more than just the minor win that it was on the battlefield. But, you know, I think the thing that really stuck me on this is a quote from Captain Johann von Ewald, who was one of the Jaegers, and it really appealed to my own personal military sense of honor and my own values that my grandparents taught me. And if I can quote from that, he wrote that when a man chooses a calling, he must do everything he can to be done in that calling and uh, so that he can never suffer reproach for having done only half of his duty. On this account, I keep among the mottos of my portfolio to serve at the times. Honor is like an island, steep and without shore. They who once leave can never return. The Lord myth that I understood about the Battle of Trenton, uh, the first Battle of Trenton, really did a big disservice to, to Colonel Rawl, and I got very interested in his story. The more I dug into it, um, the more I realized that history has not ju done justice to his reputation, his story, and what really happened that day. What is the difference between tactical negligence and personal negligence as it applies to this article? Sure. So tactical negligence, uh, Rawl was a professional soldier. He, he was a military brat, so to speak. He grew up in his own father's regiment. He received training from a very early age, which was common um, amongst the Hessians and, and beginning as a teenager. So he was not lacking in any professional training or understanding of what was required of him. Personal negligence falls into, you know, what did he do? Uh, what was part of his character? What was his behavior aside from his training and understanding of his role that may have contributed? And, and this is somewhat of a legal question, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. But was it a failure as an officer? Was it a failure of his decisions on the battlefield? Did he fail to make prefer preparations? Did he not follow orders, not follow established doctrines? Um, or was he drinking on the job and, and derelict, as a lot of historians have accused him of um, in popular culture and accountings. Um, 
the accusations repeatedly made by historians that he was guilty of personal negligence. However, when you read all the accounts, no Germans, no British, and specifically no American ever accused him of this. Um, instead, the Landgraf, Friedrich II, attribute the failure uh, to Rawls' lack of administration and promotion of military discipline. And a lot of people don't know this. Very few have covered it. Uh, Friedrich um, Baer wrote a book last year uh, that was just recently released um, about the Hessians, and she makes one of the first references to the court-martial that occurred um, that was completed in, in uh, 1782. And he was fa- found guilty um, of what would amount to tactical negligence and a failure to follow orders and follow established doctrine. So, you know, I dispel all of this in my work. Um, you know, the maneuver the maneuverability on the battlefield, the bridges he had to defend, the roads to the north, so all of that contributes to the decision-making process and, and what he felt was needed and how he reacted um, and what he didn't get. So um, my, my effort here in my work is to go ahead and provide a true accounting of what happened that day. Tell us about Rawls' early life. Sure. So we know that he was born sometime around 1726 in Hessen-Kessel. It's a, it was a German-speaking polity of the Holy Roman Empire. Germany did not exist at the time, and, and loosely uh, all of the Germans are referred to as Hessians that fought on, during the American Revolution. Um, he was destined for military service, as many young men of his time were um, in that part of the world. He first became a cadet in his father's regiment and was promoted to warrant officer in July of 1741, so fairly young. Um, He rose through the ranks pretty steadily, uh, and uh, his service saw him throughout the entire continent. Um, Officers in Hessen-Kessel were promoted on a merit basis, and that's important to his background, unlike the uh, British counterparts who would purchase their commissions. Uh, based on their birthright. So uh, jumping a little bit forward, uh, April 1771, he assumed command of an infantry regiment. He saw action in the War of Austrian Secession, led troops in Bavaria, the Rhine, and the Netherlands, gained more combat experience in the Seven Years' War in Europe. And then from September of 1771 through uh, August 72, he fought for Catherine the Great's army in the Russo-Turkish War. Um, and then after the, the subsidy treaties were signed with King George III, he was sent to the American colonies. He was uh, 50 years old, had 36 years of military experience as a professional soldier at that time, and he was given a uh, command of one of the regiments, um, and that regiment was actually named for him as was customary for the Hessians uh, during that time period. How did he become involved in the revolution at the outset? Sure. So, you know, King George III sought to supplement his army. Uh, The British had a real aversion to standing armies and was the custom at the time. They they would let out um, various uh, armies um, from countries, primarily the uh, German polities. Um, but uh, but other countries as well. Um, his uh, sovereign, uh, Landgraf Frederick II of Hessen-Kessel, 
uh, signed one of the early subsidy treaties, as did his son in Hessen, Hanau. And as part of that, Rawl was given a regiment and was sent to America, landing with the initial troops at Staten Island. Um, and his name appears routinely throughout all of the historiography of the role of the Hessians in America right up to uh, Christmas Day of 1776. He was involved in uh, all of the earlier battles leading up to that of note, uh, primarily for Washington and White Plains, where he was uh, he performed very courageously and bravely and with honor. Describe, if you could, Rawls' service in North America before Trenton. He was highly respected by his troops. Uh, in fact, if you look at the diaries of a lot of his men, um, his lieutenants primarily, they point out his courageousness and his bravery in battle. Um, Colonel Von Donop, General Neupausen, they were actually uh, somewhat in awe, not necessarily in a positive way, but they knew how tenacious he was on the battlefield. Uh, he had a tendency to charge ahead. He was known for leading his men from the front. Uh, there are several entries from Lieutenant Jacob Peel, uh, Bartleben, and even one of his biggest detractors, Viderhold, could not help himself, but um, acknowledge the fact that particularly at the Battle of Fort Washington and the Battle of White Plains, uh, Rawl was leading from the front. They were so concerned about his aggressive approach that once he took some of these forts, uh, they had to restrain him because he, he would have gone in and massacred the, the Americans that were inside of those, those forts. Um, it was a battle to the end for him. Um, so, you know, they were, they were concerned about the repercussions and the reputation of the Hessians during that time. Remember in the 25th grievance of the declaration of independence, uh, Thomas Jefferson laid out that, you know, the king was sending these armies that were going to cause all this destruction and, and atrocities on the Americans. And um, so they were a little bit sensitive to that. But Rawl, Rawl certainly was a military man's commander, um, and his, his people respected him greatly right up to the point of the Battle of Trenton. What was his role at Trenton? Sure. So on December 14th of 1776, General Howe, who had overall command of all of the British Army in the Americas, um, gave orders to the Hessians uh, under General James Grant to establish a series of pickets throughout the Jerseys that would basically hold the land until a spring offensive could be launched to take Philadelphia. So at that time, General Howe, General Cornwallis, General James Grant, they were all of the opinion that General Washington was almost done at this point. They had chased them out of New York all the way across the Jerseys, um, had scattered them in, in parts of western New Jersey and across the river into Pennsylvania. Um, they knew that the American enlistments were, were up. They were going to expire at the end of December. They knew that the Americans um, were exhausted. They were cold. They were unprovisioned. They were on the run. And they were demoralized over two pretty serious losses at the hands of, of Rawl and, and Van Donop and others under uh, Neuthausen. Um, Grant uh, rewarded uh, Rawl, um, really uh, General Howe rewarded him and, and assigned um, Von Donop overall command over all the pickets at Bordentown, Burlington, Princeton, Trenton, and elsewhere. Um, but General Howe recognized and Colonel Rawl 
um, awarded him the command at Trenton for his action, something that Rawl had requested and wanted. And so um, Hal capitulated and gave that to him. So Trenton was indeed a failure and a turning point in the war, but not not for the reasons that we would or are commonly accepted. Um, there was a lot of distrust between the British and the Germans. There was a lot of contempt for the Americans, led particularly by uh, comments and statements by uh, General James Grant and um, a, a relative or misjudgment of the relative safety of the winter quarters um, really all contributed to this, this change here. Um, Rawl was made commander of the Trenton garrison. He had his own brigade there. There was a major von Dieschau, um, who is mistakenly often referred to as what would have been Rawls executive officer or, or adjutant, but um, he actually was in charge of his own brigade, but subservient to Rawl. Uh, Captain Johann Ewald had a detachment under Lieutenant Grothausen with the Jaegers. There was a small British detachment there, an engineer officer and a small artillery detachment. He um, was basically ordered to hold the post at Trenton, one of many of the pickets across Jersey's, and and defend his sector while the British Army remained in winter quarters. At that time, Howe had returned to uh, New York. He had actually given permission to General Cornwallis to visit his family in England, uh, which indicates how secure Howe felt that they were um, during this time. The problem was Trenton was the furthest and most exposed. It, It was closest to the river. Um, it, it kind of left Rawl subject to probing skirmishes, hit and run tactics. Uh, at this time, Washington had attempted to fight the British as the British fought, but the Jaegers, as you know, um, had taken the asymmetrical warfare. Uh, they weren't accustomed to a lot of the traditional style of warfare that the British fought. Washington, by this time, was starting to adapt and adopt that asymmetrical warfare. And so probing skirmishes, particularly hitting them on their flanks, hit and run operations, um, kind of following the, uh, the advice of Tacitus to, to live and fight another day whenever possible. He was figuring out how he could best employ his troops to, to beat the British at this time. James, in your opinion, what were his biggest failures there? Well, I think, you know, few key points about the Americans at this point, you know, Washington had um, decided that he was, you know, he had put together his plan and he had General Caldwallader and General Ewing to the south that were supposed to attack and hit Rawl from the south. Um, Washington was counting on General Lee hitting from the north, but Lee was captured on December 14th. So he was out of the fight. So that left him with General Sullivan, General Green uh, to, to, lead in from the river road and Pennington road from the North. Um, he didn't know where Lee was. He was not aware that Codwallader and Ewing had not met, uh, their, um, you know, their obligations and general Glover and the Marvel Hunters were giving them some pushback too, but the general Glover certainly shined on that day. One other key point, and then I'll get into the failures of questioning. And, and you wrote about this in your book, Hessians, um, at that time, there was a diversion. Uh, Von Donop had been drawn away to Mount Holly, um, and Ewald was very upset over that. That happened two days before the battle. So um, some troops that uh, Rawl would have been counting on from Von Donop to come to 
uh, assist them and reinforce them were not available because of that diversion that happened two days before. I would say, and it is reflected in the diaries, particularly of Lieutenant Viderhold, and later reflected to Washington, that his, his specific failures had to do with uh, not responding to intelligence, um, preparing a proper defense, although he gave good reasons to Von Donop why he did not build redoubts. And that had uh, to do with his belief that he needed to have maneuverability on the battlefield. He had a natural barrier of the river to his west. He had open fields to his east. He had the enemy uh, skirmishing on the, on the, his southern flank. He had the approaches of the Pennington and River Road that he was concerned about to the north, which ultimately is where the battle um, originated. Um, so I, I would argue vehemently that there were others that were much more uh, responsible for the failures, one being General Grant for not responding to a series of letters that Rawl had requested reinforcements, opening lines of communication to Princeton. Only General Alexander Leslie took him seriously. Von Donop ignored him. Um, and even though Viderhold in his diary uh, and later recounts would blame uh, a lot of these things on Rawl, when you read the letters, um, that are available to us, particularly from William S. Stryker's work, The Battles of, of Trenton and Princeton, you find those letters and you read through them and you realize Rawl was taking every step that he possibly could to inform his superiors of the threat and to get them to reinforce it. The second thing, and very important, is that Lieutenant Grothausen, who was in charge of the detachment, um, was the first one to encounter the Americans that day. He fled from the battlefield. He felt that they were going to be destroyed. He fled to Princeton. He wound up being killed a couple of days later. But if he had held his ground, the next person to get hit was Lieutenant Viderhold and his detachment, and then Lieutenant Peel uh, and uh, Captain Alkenbogen. Um, they were able to retreat. Uh, but if Grothausen had held him, Raw would have had enough warning to take the field and potentially hold a pretty good uh, defense, even though they were outnumbered about three to one at that time. So um, a lot of people will point to not building the redoubts. However, he told Von Donop ahead of time that that would have been a wasted effort and would have further um, deteriorated his troops' morale and, and their health and uh, believe that maneuverability. Von, Dom Von Donop endorsed that and did so in writing to Grant. So, you know, the failures that Rawl had are, you really need to get into the details and, and you wind up defending him once you put together all of the requests and reports that he had put into place. Von Donop had ordered him to give him a report every two weeks. Rawl was giving him reports sometimes as much as three times a day. Talk about what happens to Rawl after the battle. Well, Rawl died that day. Um, Rawls and Von Dieschel. Von Dieschel died uh, very quickly afterwards. So he was out of the battle. Uh, nothing good, right? Um, uh, however, the Landgraf had ordered a court-martial, and because life got in the way and because Heister was recalled for health reasons, Neuhausen would carry out the court-martial that the Landgraf demanded. That was not concluded until 1782, and a lot of those records were buried for the longest time. You know, most people are not aware of them. Very few historians have touched on it. But we got to remember the lessons from Carol Reed and 
Reardon, which talks in Pickett's charge about these disconnected threads. So, you know, I was able to reach out to Dr. Eva Bender in Marburg, Germany, and get a hold of these documents. They're all in German and start transcribing them and translating them to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. And he was thrown under the bus. He, he, it was agreed that he would take the blame and Von Dieschau and Grothausen would take the blame. They were the only three that died. Ultimately, all the other officers were um, basically uh, found to be not guilty of any negligence or any guilt for the loss of the garrison that day. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? I'd like to think that this article is a testament to truth and a nod to um, certain historical methodologies that are really important to me personally. I try to um, follow the the methodology of Leopold von Ranke, um, not so much seeking causality, but to see things as they actually happened, um, embracing those principles of how things actually were. There's a lot of debate over uh, Ranke's uh, approach to things, but I think if we can dig deeper into the facts and understand exactly how things happen, we've got a better understanding of the overall wall uh, role that that each one of these individuals had in the war, and um, it makes us more complete in the understanding of the history of the revolution. There's a lot of great myths that are um, del- deal with patriotism and nation- nationalism. Um, I am not one for revisionist history, but I am one for getting it right. And I, I hope that I got it right on the Battle of Trenton. James Deitch, thanks again. Thank you, Brady. It was great being with you today. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.